Let me read our text for today. This is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, if you want to turn there in your Bibles and follow along as I read Matthew 6, just two verses, 5 and 6. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's Word. Now we're going through the Sermon on the Mount during these winter and spring months. But for Lent, especially for these six weeks, we're focusing on Jesus' teaching on prayer and fasting that's right kind of in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount stretch of Scripture. So we'll be looking particularly at His teaching on prayer. And so today we begin that, we just take the first two verses of it, and then we'll work our way through, including the Lord's Prayer, and then end with the teaching on fasting that follows it. I'd like us to look at our passage Uh, really under three headings, just three simple headings to help us process it. One, let's consider the danger of uh, godless prayer. Two, let's understand and embrace, I'm sorry, children are dismissed for Children's Church. I'm excited about this outline more than I was last week, so I want to give it to you. (laughs) It's just the outline. So three headings, okay? Number one, the danger of godless prayer, where Jesus warns us against the wrong kind of prayer. And then two, uh, the exhortation to embrace secret prayer, and he teaches us what it is. And then finally, how we are to pray in light of the prayer of the crucified, prayer of Jesus himself. So godless prayer, secret prayer, and prayer of the crucified. Okay, so let's look at verse 5. Jesus says, when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now you remember, maybe from last week, it's the same logic that was applied to giving that is now applied to prayer. It's the same exact mechanism. Jesus says, if you do something for show, some kind of spiritual thing that is meant to be done for God, but you do it for others, you put it on display, you do it so you can be seen doing it, Jesus says, that's your reward. If you seek affirmation and praise of others by giving or by praying in public, he says, that's what you get. You get that. But that's all you get. If you pray in a way that impresses others, and that is your goal in prayer, Jesus says, you may in fact impress others and feel affirmation and validation from others, but you get nothing from God. This has nothing to do with God. He says, you get the response of people that you are addressing in prayer. Now, some people take this passage to mean that Jesus does not want us to pray out loud at all, or in front of others, or to pray corporately with others. However, if you look at Scripture, I mean, it's very clear that Jesus himself prayed publicly many, many times. 
throughout the, the Gospels, we see him praying specifically so he can be heard by others. We also see the, the church all through the Scriptures gathering to pray. Some people lead in prayer. In fact, Jesus himself tells us just a few verses later, pray like this, and he gives us a sample prayer, which is the prayer that we prayed in the beginning of the service. God's people throughout the redemptive history would pray certain passages together, like certain psalms. They would just pray them verbatim. They would sing them. There are passages in the New Testament where Paul would quote a hymn that everybody knew. Now, what I'm saying is that whatever Jesus is saying, he's not forbidding us simply to pray out loud or to pray publicly. That can't be. There's too much of other passages that contradict it. But he does say something about how we do that. So what is he warning us against? I think it's clear that he's warning us against hypocritical prayer. In other words, there's prayer on the outside, outwardly, but there's no prayer on the inside for the sake of being heard by God himself. Jesus simply does not think that this kind of prayer is prayer at all. He says, when you pray like the hypocrites, you pray for the sake of being seen and heard by others. That's all you're doing. So whether you're doing it in public, on the street corner, in the synagogue, in church, at small group, at the dining room table, it doesn't matter. If you're doing it for show, if you're doing it for others, that's who you're doing it for. You're not doing it for God. And so there's no spiritual benefit in this kind of prayer. In fact, there's great spiritual danger in doing that. Jesus says, this is godless prayer. So what he really is warning us against, whether it's public or private or corporate or written prayers or spontaneous prayers, he says if it's not done toward God, if it's done toward others, it's godless. It's really not prayer at all. Someone once described an ornate and elaborate prayer offered it in a fashionable Boston church as the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. The most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Prayers that are offered to an audience instead of God. Whoever is listening, I'm praying, essentially I'm praying to you and I'm praying to be seen by you. And so the question we have to wrestle with this morning and Believe me, I really have to wrestle with that because I do a lot of public prayer. You know, I, I'm, I'm always praying in front of others and people ask me to pray, and this is a real issue. I have to wrestle with that, and you have to wrestle with, are, are we guilty of godless, prayerless praying? Now, here's how it can happen to us. I'll give you some examples. When asked to pray at small group or church or even around dinner time, there's a temptation to simply string up a series of cliches associated with prayer. We might begin with something like, Dear God or Precious Heavenly Father. While in reality, God is neither dear nor precious to us. Because the last time we talked to him was the last time we were asked to pray. And we started that prayer just like we did this prayer. We might continue with throwing in phrases like hedge of protection or just bless them, Lord, guide them. 
without having any idea of what we're actually asking for. We just hear those phrases used in prayer. We use them in prayer. And so when asked to pray, that's what we do. It just comes out, sometimes quite organically and naturally, but we don't actually know what we're praying for. We don't know what we're asking. Many evangelical prayers are little more than weather reports. We love to pray about the weather. Because, and this is, and again, I'm I'm holding back because it's so easy to make fun of these things, but I don't want to do that because this is really serious. And I think we might love to pray about the weather because the weather is more real to us than God. So it's easier. I can talk about the weather. I understand. I can see the sun. But God isn't as real to me, so it's hard to talk to him and about him. Now, of course, when we pray for the food, which is, by the way, the most likely time when you might be asked to pray out loud, few of us are unprepared for that. We thank God for the food we're about to receive. We ask him to bless the hands that prepared this meal and to use this food to nourish our bodies. How easy is it for us, us, Evangelical people, us Bible people, you know, we're, we're prayerful people in general. How easy it is for us to slip into the evangelical prayer language while not actually speaking to God at all. Now, another way we can be guilty of godless prayer is when we pray in such a way in public that we never do so in private. In other words, when you listen to somebody pray in public, And you have to ask yourself, is that how they pray in private? If I'm presenting myself in a certain way in public while praying, you should assume that's how I pray in in private. But is it true? We quote scripture from memory, including references in prayer. We get unusually emotional sometimes in prayer. We use such complex grammatical structures that sometimes... By the end, you're, you know, by the time you're done with that sentence, you have no idea where you are grammatically. There's too many clauses at that point. And you just kind of wrap it up. We pray to project humility or faithfulness or familiarity with God, the way we address Him in public. Now, such prayers, Jesus says, may be impressive to other people. They may get you some credit with others. They may uh, change your standing in the eyes of others. But they are not impressive to God. Jesus says that true prayer, real prayer, is addressed to God, and it comes from the heart. That's how it's supposed to work. So it's okay to pray in public as long as you're actually praying to God. It's okay to use a cliche. And all of us, the cliches I've mentioned, all of us have used them. I've used them. It's not wrong to use them. It's wrong to use them without understanding and meaning what they mean. It's okay to be emotional in public when you're praying. As long as you also get emotional when it's just you and God in the room. It's okay to confess sin in public. Now, we did that earlier today. If we're actually confessing to God and not trying to get people to see ourselves as authentic people, 
The difference is going to be in your own heart. It's not enough for a church to say, well, we're just not going to use formal prayers or we're not going to use anything written, anything prepared. We're always going to go spontaneous. That's not enough to say that. Because you can still do that to impress others. And formal prayers could easily be used to mask our prayerlessness. Of course they can be. You can pray the Lord's Prayer every day of your life and not mean a word of it. And there are people who do that. And Jesus says, that's not prayer. Whatever you're doing, that's not really prayer. Whether it's spontaneous, stringing up cliches, whether it's formal, a memorized prayer, a passage of scripture, a communal prayer, whatever it is, Jesus says, if it's not coming from your heart, and if it's not actually talking to God, it's not prayer. It's godless. Jesus' point is simply that prayer needs to be sincere. Our public praying should be consistent with our private praying. Are your prayers sincere? Are you a hypocrite? You pray in a certain way, but in your heart, your heart doesn't match what you say. And you like that people are perceiving you a certain way, but it's not really who you are. That's hypocrisy. Listen to D.A. Carson who says, we will comprehend Jesus' point better if we ask, each ask ourselves these questions. Do I pray more frequently and more fervently when alone with God than I do in public? Do I love the secret place of prayer? Is it my public praying is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? That's how it should be. If the answers to are not enthusiastic affirmatives, we fail the test and fall under Jesus' condemnation. We are hypocrites. And as harsh as it sounds, it's exactly right. It's exactly right. If we put on a show, if we pray to impress, if we communicate something with our words that isn't true of us in our hearts, we're hypocrites. That's what a hypocrite is. And Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't do that. And so now let's talk about this idea of secret prayer, because this is how Jesus says we should be praying. Let's talk about secret prayer. Jesus says in verse 6, but when you pray, remember the contrast, don't pray like the hypocrites, but when you pray, his disciples, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now here I must tell you that the first thing that I learned, it's got to be one of the first, very first things I learned after becoming a Christian, is this idea of spending time alone with God every day. Now to me it was presented as a quiet time. That's the language that people who were discipling me used. But you can use any term, any term, all that means is that every day you're setting aside some time, you go into some place, and you are communing with God. You're talking to Him. You're reading Scripture. You're hearing His voice. You're, you're pouring out your heart before Him. This idea of a, a designated, intentional time spent with God every day alone, just you and God, I believe is foundational to Christian growth. In fact, I can't really think of anything that is more powerful to help us grow than this pattern of 
interaction with God through scripture and prayer every day. And so I want to tell you that today I want to convince you to do that. If you're not doing that, if you're not having a quiet time every day, I want you to start doing that. And what a great time to start doing that uh, Lent is. Lent is a wonderful time to, to start implementing those patterns. And if you are doing that, I want to encourage you. I want to support you. I want to say this is really important. Be consistent. Be disciplined. Continue to do that. And do it for real. Do it from your heart, sincerely speaking to God himself. I think everything in our Christian life actually flows from that. As we spend time with God, this is where our character gets honed. This is where God typically convicts us when we come to a passage of Scripture that doesn't align with our lives. This is where God reveals himself through his word. Now, of course, there are other means. Community is an, is an excellent means of grace. Coming to the Lord's table, attending worship, singing. Those are all really good means of grace. But I think the foundational thing is being alone with God, a secret prayer. That's the foundational thing. And if that's not there, all those other means, I feel like they, they can't really fit together very well. They lack that foundational element. Now, we know from Scripture that Jesus himself practiced that. If you need any encouragement to start doing that, Jesus did it. Mark 1.35 says, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus did that. Luke 5.16 says, But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And the language here of something regular, something that was habitual for him, there was a pattern in his life. He would withdraw and pray. To be with the Father, to be alone with the Father and pray. Jesus did that. Even in the midst of demanding ministry where people are, are, are pressing on him, you know, there are crowds wanting them to, to wanting him to heal them, he's still withdrawing, he's still going away, and they're looking for him. So often they're looking for Jesus in the Gospels. Where is he? He's praying. He's praying to the Father. And Jesus says, this is what we're supposed to do. When you pray, go into a room, shut the door, and be with your Father. Be with him. Pray, talk to him. Now notice how intentional Jesus wants us to be about this kind of secret prayer. Go into your room and shut the door. Create space and time in your life for prayer. Now, some Christians say, well, I pray all the time. I just talk to God throughout the day. And if you are doing that, I want to affirm you. I think we ought to do that. I think that's what Paul means by, by commanding us to pray without ceasing, is that ongoing conversation with God, that whatever is happening in my life, I'm, I'm talking through stuff with him. I think that's another discipline that needs to be developed. But it is not a substitute for focused prayer with God. It's not. Just like a married couple, and specifically a husband, would say, oh, I, we talk all the time. We're always talking about what's going on with the kids. We're talking about the budget. We're talking about dinner plans. And sometimes the wife would say, yeah, but we're never really talking. We need time to sit down and talk. Speaking from experience here. We need time. We need to get away. We need to go and have undisturbed time where kids are not coming in and disrupting. 
The same thing with God. It is awesome that we're talking to him throughout the day. But we need those focused times when we just get together with him and we're just sitting there in solitude, in quiet, in that secret place of prayer, and we're just conversing with him uninterrupted. We must develop a pattern, a habit of withdrawing to be with God alone. Now this is what Jesus is teaching us. He says, don't pray like the hypocrites who go to a street corner and it's time for prayer and they're praying, lifting their arms and everybody can see them and they pray these long elaborate prayers. He says, that's not real prayer. Real prayer is when you just go and you're with God and you're talking to him and undisturbed and sometimes unobserved. Get rid of the distractions, shut the door, make room for hearing God, be there with God, be there, be present. Don't distract yourself with other things. Focus your thoughts, talk to him, listen to him. Paul Miller, in his very helpful book on prayer, and by the way, if you want to read anything on prayer, I say start with Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. It is so accessible, it is so encouraging. It is not, it's not going to make you feel guilty, which some prayer books do. This one won't. It'll just help you. Paul Miller says, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments, production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless, as if we're wasting time. Every bone in our bodies screams, get to work. When we aren't working, we're used to being entertained. Television, the internet, video games, and cell phones make free time as busy as work. When we do slow down, we slip into a stupor. Exhausted by the pace of life, we veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. If we try to be quiet, he goes on, we are assaulted by what C.S. Lewis called the kingdom of noise. Everywhere we go, we hear background noise. If the noise isn't provided for us, we can bring our own iPod. Even our church services can have the same restless energy. There's little space to be still before God. We want our money's worth, so something should always be happening. We are uncomfortable with silence. I think Miller is very insightful because we're all coming from that and we're all dealing with that and now we have to figure out how to pray. And Jesus says, go into a room, shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Pray to your Father who is in secret. I love this language of secrets. Solitude and quiet, they create this opportunity to be open with God, to tell Him your secrets. Secret prayer is about meeting with God on a deep, personal level. It's about revealing the secrets of your heart to God directly, immediately to Him. Now, I've read some of the early church fathers on, on this passage, and I was impressed that even though they largely say what we all say, they make a correlation between the secret place, this inner chamber or the bedroom or the storeroom, whatever Jesus means here where you go and pray, that's your 
prayer room, prayer closet. But the early fathers make the connection between that and our hearts. They're saying, yeah, it's not just going to a physical space where you can be alone with God. They're saying you have to be alone with God in your heart. Your heart has to be open to Him. It's not enough just to provide a physical space for yourself. You have to provide a spiritual space for yourself. And so one church father, for example, says we are here admonished to enter the bedroom of our hearts. The bedroom of our hearts. Augustine equates the inner chamber with the inmost heart of the believer. Inmost heart of the believer where prayer is offered to the Father in secret. And yes, I think finding a physical place is very helpful. And some of us have specific places in the house where it's quiet, where it's undisturbed, and this is where you can pray. I think that's important. I think it helps to find a room where you can kind of shut the door if you can and, 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 and shut out the distractions. It's very helpful to do that. But the most important thing to do is to find a spiritual place of openness and vulnerability with God. So when you pray, are you telling your secrets to God? Is that the kind of level of communion with God that you're experiencing? Are you open before Him? Do you pour out your heart to Him? Which is another cliche, by the way. But it's a cliche because it's true. It describes something that happens in the secret prayer where things come out of your heart that maybe nobody else knows about. And you tell them to God. Now, does God already know? Of course He knows. But the fact of telling that to God is so meaningful because you're saying, I trust you with this secret. I trust you not to betray me. I trust you not to abandon me. I trust you to listen to me. And I'm going to be completely open with you. And it's very difficult for me, it's very painful. But you say that to God. Now, this kind of approach, this approach of solitude and quiet, setting aside time and, and place for reflection or meditation or prayer, is something that appeals to many people today. In fact, you hear many people, religious or not, talk about this practice. It diff has different names meditation, solitude, uh, I mean, certainly prayer, reflection. Uh, alone time, you know, whatever we call that. But that's, that's actually a popular concept in our culture. And I think the reason is because we're all struggling with, with modern life. You know, it's just, it's just a lot of stress. The pace of life is hard to maintain. We get anxious, we get overwhelmed. And so naturally we think, I need that place and time of solitude. I just need to recenter. I need to get reconnected with what's real. And so you hear a lot about that. Many books, religious and secular, and religious, broadly religious, not just Christian, advocate for some sort of daily quiet time. Many Christian books on spiritual disciplines actually read like many other books that are not Christian on the same topic. They tell you what to do, how to do it, give you a lot of technique, and even what you should expect to happen in your heart as you do it, and how your life would be better if you did it. But many of the books, including Christian books, do not spend hardly any time on who is this other person we're supposed to meaningfully commune with. I have to tell you, it's actually startling. You pick up books on Christian disciplines, especially sort of this 
this is a more kind of contemporary trend where there's a lot of books that are written about spiritual retreats and spiritual direction and, and being alone with God and cultivating uh, the kind of heart that is unafraid to be open. Um, and a lot of the spiritual disciplines from the centuries are kind of pulled into that stream. And I have to tell you that it's startling to read a book like that and see very little said about who God is. It's mostly really focused on us. It's what we are to do. It's what's going on in our hearts. Why are we afraid to be open? How do we find time in our busy schedules to do that? And how we shouldn't feel guilty that we're not doing that? That's the book, often. And I read that and I say, but who are we talking to here? <laughs> who is this God that you're telling me to go and commune with? Tell me more about him. Tell me. Tell me what it means to talk to him, not just what words to use and where to sit, but who is he and why is he worth talking to? I think a lot of these books of Christians, they're just assuming that we know. Okay, maybe we do know. But sometimes I think some of those books also think it doesn't really matter as much what we think about God. The whole field of spiritual disciplines and spiritual direction, I think, is not sufficiently concerned with who God is. Tim Keller says, addressing this issue, he says, telling someone to pray and not worry about who God is or what we believe about him cannot serve as a sustaining operating principle of prayer because you cannot grow in a relationship with a person unless you learn who he or she is. Isn't that true? I mean, I think about marriage, and, and, and I think about my own experience of marriage. And I'm, I'm learning. I'm not saying that to be authentic, okay? I'm just telling you what I'm feeling. I, I'm learning that no matter how, how, what I think about myself and how well I'm doing in marriage, no matter how good a husband I think I am, it really doesn't matter unless... Jillian also thinks that, you see? There's no such thing as being a good husband for me, only a good husband to Jillian. And it's no good focusing on my marriage unless I focus on my wife. Lots of good marriage books, lots of good advice there. But as I'm painfully learning, Unless I know my wife, unless I know what she needs, unless I know how to love her, what kind of husband am I? doesn't matter. doesn't matter how many techniques I've learned on how to be a good husband. doesn't matter how many books I've read. doesn't matter even what I think about myself. Ultimately, the test is, do I know her, and am I loving her? And it's the same thing, same dynamic, works with God. And the scriptures do not so much teach about prayer as such as much as they teach about God. The point of the scriptures, the point of the book, is not to tell us how to do things. Now, you get that along the way, of course. It's to tell us about who he is. It's the revelation of God. And then, because you know who he is, you want to be with him. You want to spend time with him. You want to talk to him. And so you may have figured out the how of quiet times. And that's good. 
But unless you figure out the who, it's very little use to you. Jesus says, pray to your Father. This is, this is the most important word in this passage, unquestionably. Pray to your Father. God is our Father. And prayer is an expression, an application of our relationship with Him as our Father. Prayer must always be personal, even when it's public, because God is our Father. It must always be secret, even when it is spoken out loud, because we're talking to someone who knows us intimately. Because He's our Father. That's who He is. He desires intimate, deep conversations with His children. Now, I know for many of us, maybe most, that has not been our experience with our fathers or mothers. But God isn't like them. God is the kind of father that delights in having his child come to him and simply babble and talk and just dump a bunch of information on him. And he's there and he loves it. Because he wants that kind of intimate, personal relationship, deep relationship with his children. And for those kinds of conversations to happen, we need time, we need space, we need habits, we need openness of heart, we need vulnerability. But all those things are necessary because God is our Father. Quiet times are, are not just a spiritual practice that can help us get a better handle on on the crazy pace of life or give us peace in the midst of the storm. They are times spent with a God who loves us and wants us to know him as he knows us. He is your father who is in secret. Meaning he's a deeply personal and intimate God. For God to say, I want to relate to you as a father who is in secret not as a public father figure, right? But as a father who connects with his children in secret, in a personal, deep, intimate way. He loves childlike prayers. Now Jesus talked about the faith of a child and always saying this is what we're supposed to be like. Why? Partly because God is a father and he loves kids. And so when we act like kids, he loves it. When there is simplicity in our prayers, he loves it. He doesn't want an ornate, elaborate prayer offered to a Boston audience. That's not what he wants. He wants childlike conversation. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a child, you know what I'm talking about. It's that kind of free-flowing, let me just tell you what's going on, and a lot of the things I'm going to tell you about are not really connected to each other. I have not thought through them. I don't know how to react to some of these things, so at the end of this conversation, I may feel completely differently. But I'm here and I'm just talking to my father. Because that's who he is. Prayer for the sake of prayer itself is godless prayer. If you just want to work on prayer, that's no good. But if you want to know God through prayer, if you want to be with him, if you want to talk to him, that's what prayer is for. You will get better at prayer as you get better at knowing who God is. As you know him more and more as your father, 
you will start talking more and more to him. And so my question is, and I have to ask the question because it's not automatic, do you know God as Father? Have you been adopted into his family? The great truth of Scripture, the great truth of the Gospel is that God came to us and though we were orphans, he took us and brought us into his home and he adopted us. That's why he's our father. I wasn't born related to him. I was adopted into his family. And so I know him as my father through adoption. Romans 8.15 tells us that God sends his spirit, called the spirit of adoption. What a sweet name for the Holy Spirit. The spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Because the spirit comes into our hearts, we now can relate to God as our father with affectionate names for him, with confidence that when we speak to him, he listens. That happens because something was changed in us. Our hearts needed to be changed. They needed to be renewed, recalibrated. They needed to be given life and opened up to see God as our Father, to address Him as our Father, to love Him as our Father. This is true prayer, and it only happens if the Holy Spirit is working in you. So is is the Holy Spirit working in you, and do you know God as Father? Because this is true prayer. See, we can't really preach on prayer, we can't really study prayer or learn to pray unless all of that has to do with who God is, specifically God as Father. There's no better way to describe what Christianity is than knowing that God is your Father. Everything is connected to that, you see. All the strands, all the pieces are pulled together in this grand idea that God is our Father. And Jesus ends this little section by saying, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, if you don't pray like hypocrites, you just go in your room and you talk to your dad, if this is how you pray, from your heart, addressing God, undisturbed, you just pray to him, you want to talk to him, then this Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now remember, the hypocrite's reward was the praise of other people. But what is our reward? What is the reward of people who want to meet God in secret? Quite simply, it is God. God is our reward, and He is our portion forever. God gives Himself to us when we go into that secret place and meet with Him. I'm sorry, but is there greater reward out there? Is there a greater person out there in eternity, in the universe? Is there somebody better, more beautiful than he is? And he says, when you come to me in secret, because I see in secret, I meet you in secret, I meet you on the deep personal level. If you come to me for that, you get it. You actually get it. He says, I will meet with you. I will speak with you. I will love you. You will know that I'm there. This is the reward. And if this is the reward, if God says that if you seek me in secret, you will find me and I will be there for you, why aren't you praying? Why aren't you praying? You can get God in prayer. Why aren't you praying? Paul Miller says, regardless of how or when you pray, if you give God the space 
He will touch your soul. God knows you're exhausted. But at the same time, he longs to be part of your life. A feast awaits. I, I love the language of the senses, you know, when it comes to Scripture. When it talks about experiencing things the way we know how to experience things. A feast. You can taste. God says, taste and see, right? Come to me, experience me. And the reward is that God will be there. A feast awaits, and there's nothing greater. There's nothing objectively greater than that, and God gives you that by grace if you would just come to him. Now I want to finish this sermon by telling you about Jesus' experience of secret prayer. Because our secret prayer, all that I've said so far, all these exhortations to pray and to go to a secret place, to open your heart before God, to see, see him as your father, all of that depends on how Jesus prayed. We can't know the Father without the Son. And if you keep reading the Gospel of Matthew, and maybe you're new to Scriptures, maybe you're just listening to what I'm saying, which is chapter 5 and 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, there's more to come. And as you, as you keep reading it, and I hope you are, I hope you read through all of Scripture and you get the whole story, and if you read Matthew, you will get to chapter 26. And we find Jesus going to a garden late at night to pray. And I think that's a beautiful moment. Jesus in the garden late at night with his Bible open, seeing on a boulder the sun is setting. This is an Instagram picture, right? <laughs> because that's what I would do. Because I'm a hypocrite. But Jesus doesn't do that. This is different. You know he had a pattern of secret prayer, but this prayer is different. He goes late at night into the garden to pray because he needs to pray. Scripture says, Matthew 26, 39, he fell on his face, fell on his face, Jesus, and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now this is Jesus in secret prayer, pouring out his heart before the father, telling him his secrets, and what is he praying about? He knows that any minute now, they're going to come for him. They're going to arrest him. They're going to sentence him. And they're going to crucify him. He also knows that ultimately, it's not because of the Romans. It's not because of the priests or the scribes of the Sanhedrin. It's not because of them that he's going to die. He knows because he knows the scriptures. He knows what God's will is. He knows that it is the Father's pleasure to crush him. It is his God's pleasure to crush him. The cup Jesus is reluctant to drink is the cup of God's wrath. Biblically, that's what the cup means. And so this person immersed in Scripture, immersed in secret conversations with God, now comes to God and says, I'm not sure I can take this cup. But then, knowing that it is God's will, he submits himself to his Father's will. He accepts it. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is a, a time of wrestling in prayer. This is a time of great agony for Jesus. And he leaves that secret place knowing that he needs to do God's will. And after he prays in the garden, Jesus is, in fact, arrested 
condemned, put on the cross. And then there's darkness. Matthew tells us there's darkness. Darkness is an image of God's absence. He's hiding, he's not there. There's no light. And Jesus is praying. He's praying on the cross as he's dying. Jesus goes to the secret place on the cross. He goes to the secret place to meet with his Father, but the Father is not there. It's dark. It's dark. And so Jesus prays, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, we have to hear the emotional agony of a person dying, quoting Scripture because he's immersed in the life of God. He's using the language of God. But he's crying out because God is simply not there for him. The person who's never done anything wrong, the person who's never prayed a hypocritical prayer, is praying to God, crying out to him, pouring out his heart. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's dark and the Father is not there. Now did you know that this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus, while praying, does not call God Father. It's the only place. Everywhere else he addresses God as Father, but here it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He can't call him Father. Father isn't there. The Father has abandoned him. He's not there. And Jesus dies alone, forsaken, abandoned, in the secret place of his heart, the reward hasn't come. He went to meet with God in secret, but God wasn't there. The Father wasn't there. The reward wasn't given to him. Why? What happened on the cross? Why does Jesus, of all people, why does this perfect being, I'm not even talking about his divinity right now, just the perfect human being, how can he experience this kind of agony and this kind of abandonment on the cross? Well, he was forsaken so that we can be found. The reason he did this, the reason he took the cup of God's wrath, which was not his, didn't belong to him, the wrath was not given to him, but it's our wrath, it's supposed to go to us, but Jesus took the cup and he drank it, went on the cross and he died, and he did that, he was forsaken so we can be found, he was rejected so we could be welcomed, accepted, he was forgotten in the dark so we could be remembered in the light. He was abandoned so we could be adopted into God's family, so we could come to the table, so we can go into his house, so we can meet God as he is. Because the Son of God died for us, we can know God as our Father. There is no father for a Christian unless the Son dies. Because Jesus on the cross could not call God Father, we now can. Every time we pray, we can talk to God as our Father. This is why Jesus died. So we can go into a room, shut the door, and find God there, our reward waiting for us. We can go there and whisper our secrets into his ear and see his delight on his face. This is why Jesus died. It is all yours in Christ. If you're a Christian, all of this is yours. The reward is yours. 
The question is, and that's the only question for us, are we going to use it? Are we going to take advantage of it? Are we going to live as we are supposed to live because of who we are, because of who God is? And that's the question. And you have to wrestle with it in your own heart. And I have to do the same. So let's start wrestling with that at the table. We're going to come and take communion now. And as we do that, it may feel very ritualistic communion especially because we're taking it every week. It's easy to get into that rut, right? Same with prayer. It's easy to get into a rut of prayer. But remember what's happening here. The reason we come to the table every week is because it's the table of our Father. It's because this is where God meets us. This is where He feeds us. The symbolism is family. The symbolism is feast that awaits people who love Him. That's why we come. So if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, go to Him. Don't, don't come to the table. Don't take communion for the sake of a ritual, for the sake of impressing others. Because your reward is going to be what somebody else thinks of you. But if you go to Jesus and you find Him by faith and you know what He's done for you on the cross, you know that you can be found because He was abandoned. If that is true of you, if you're connected to Christ... You get the reward of God forever. So if you're a Christian, I ask you to take communion with me now. I'm going to pray briefly and then we'll take the bread and the cup.